Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast dedicated to showcasing the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. The podcast is generously brought to you by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Linacre College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Jordan Scott, a graduate student at Rutgers University. We'll be talking primarily about the process of applying to graduate programmes in philosophy and Jordan's ongoing research on the philosophy of race. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Jordan, you can find his contact details listed on the graduate student page on the Rutgers Philosophy website. Jordan Scott, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me. So, as a British student, what is it that made you want to apply to a US PhD program in philosophy? Good question. I mean, it was kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision, I think. In part, a cynical career move. There's a lot of, you know, nice prestige in some of the US departments. Um, in part, it's because I do a lot of work in philosophy of race, and it's kind of hard to do that outside of the US. Most, uh, but In the Western world, a lot of the work is done there. And then partly just because, you know, because I could, you know, cooped up in British lockdowns and thought, yeah, I could piss off to the other side of the world for a few years. Why not? Have you noticed many differences between the way that uh, philosophy departments operate in the US versus the UK? Um, I'm still quite new, so I suppose not too many. Um, my experience of UK departments comes amidst the pandemic. It's, that's my experience of US ones, I suppose. Not massively. I think really couldn't say too much about that. That isn't just me projecting my own biased assumptions about Americans and American departments onto them. Sure, yeah, because what we've heard is that there's some kind of, I mean, hopefully you can confirm this for us, but that the first two years of a U.S. graduate program are kind of equivalent to a U.K. master's program. Would you say that's true from your experience? Yeah, I think it definitely has the, fulfills the same function. It just seems to be aimed at getting everyone to a similar level before the research starts. Otherwise, I mean, that's the weird thing about U.S. departments is that you can come in as a first year and have some people fresh out of an undergrad doing liberal arts where they've done like maybe one year's worth of full philosophy and other people who have a master's and have already spent four years at other PhD programs before transferring to this one. And if you chucked everyone in doing research at the same time, it might be a bit more unfair. So yeah, I think it all has the same function of just kind of leveling the playing field, assuring everyone has like some basic grounding, not metaphysical grounding. <laughs> from my experience, it seems that, uh, at least from what I've heard, I think in American programs, it, it tends to be fairly evenly split between those who have come straight out of undergrad and those who maybe studied a terminal master's first. But yourself, having obviously studied the MPhil at Cambridge with Kyle, do you think that's put you in particularly good stead going into this program? I'd have liked to have thought so. I'd hoped so going in. Probably not. No, I'm still often flummoxed by people who come straight out of undergrad there, but, you know, know far more than I do about things. It's, it's certainly. I'm better off than if I'd not done it, certainly. I, I don't know if it's really given me much of an edge, but it was very useful. Well, obviously, you've done something right to land the Rutgers Program of Philosophy, which is a very highly ranked uh, philosophy PhD program. So I guess, I guess a kind of obvious question would be, you know, what do you think you did right when it came to those applications? What do you think made your application stand out, I guess, for any listeners who are curious about the process? Oof, that's a hard question. I mean, I'd like to say, you know, skill and talent, but probably luck is the primary driver, especially those pandemic applications, as like you two will know, feels very lottery-esque at times. I don't know. I think perhaps it worked. There's, in the US, there's, there is a bit more of a demand for subjects like philosophy of race. And I think perhaps that 
you know, that played some of a role. But then I say that I think I had a better success rate with my UK applications than I did with my American ones. So I don't know. I think perhaps, if anything, I stood at a bit of a disadvantage on the American market because in the UK, you're trained to kind of, you know, go very specific, you know, show that you've got a research proposal, tell people exactly what you're going to be doing for the next three years, even though that's, you know, definitely a lie and everyone knows it. Whereas for the US, they, I think, like, I don't know, they like people kind of pure and innocent and uncorrupted by specialization in a certain way. And they like people with just promising, like, you know, letters of recommendation from big named professors a lot more and just like undergrad promise. And I think you're trading much more of your potential on the American market than you are on the UK market, where you kind of have to show that you know what you're doing much more. I think it was luck that I you know, got a place at a good American program. <laughs> to be honest, none of, none of the other American applications gave me a spot, I have to say. Well, not at all. I'm sure, as Kyle said, you've done something right to get into uh, such a prestigious program. But you mentioned, nevertheless, that, well, you had some more success in the UK departments where things are different. You've got that research proposal that you have to write that you don't have to write for American programs. Uh, meanwhile, American programs have some different focuses. For example, uh, you mentioned in the philosophy of race. Um, so did that play into the way that you approached that graduate application process at all? Did you kind of target those American applications a, a bit differently? And if so, do you think do you think that was a good thing to do? Do you think that's something that you would advise other students to to do? Yes, definitely. I'd definitely say target your approach to who's who's in the department, especially if you do something niche like philosophy of race. I mean, a lot of departments just don't have anyone in philosophy of race, so trying to talk it up on your applications may be a disadvantage rather than an advantage going in. I don't think I did enough personalizing of my application materials, but I did do a bit of, you know, if they have people in philosophy of race or philosophy of race adjacent topics, I try and talk that up a little bit more. And if they didn't, I, you know, maybe play that down in my own interests, uh, just a tad. But hard when like your writing sample is a philosophy of race piece. Well, I totally agree with your experience that the philosophy of race seems to be uh, less talked about, less taught as well in British universities. Uh, I myself don't think it's ever been um, a course that I've had the option of taking throughout my undergrad or my master's programs. Um, so for those who haven't studied the philosophy of race before, what is the philosophy of race? Yeah, good question. I mean, like with any philosophical domain, it's hard to give an answer that's not either going to step on the toes of people who know a lot more about it than you do, or is so kind of general as to be almost useless. My answer is probably going to tend closer to the second than the first, but it's probably kind of the combination of a mix of two things, either just applying existing philosophical concepts and questions and tools to race, or it's kind of going the other round. It's like taking certain things as truths about race and saying, what bearing does that have on our current understandings of philosophy? So you might think, I don't know, if you take like, say, racist beliefs as an ideal, so some people might hold, it's always morally wrong to hold a racist belief. And then you have to then go, oh, well, that tells us something in epistemology. Maybe it means that, you know, moral norms have to constrain beliefs or can constrain beliefs in some way. Or you might go the other way and go, well, obviously, moral norms can't constrain beliefs. So, you know, whatever racist beliefs are, you know, it can't be immoral to hold them or, you know, any number of more nuanced positions on that. That's really interesting. I guess it raises an interesting question about to what extent philosophy of race overlaps with other areas of philosophy. I think you kind of gestured at that just now. But I'm wondering, do you think you approach philosophy of race from your other like other areas of philosophy that you're familiar with? And if so, do you think we should interpret it in that way or treat philosophy of race a bit more as a separate subject? I think I'm, I'm definitely too 
new and too green to be making recommendations of the profession as a whole. But <laughs> I, I think my own work is, I tend to, yeah, I think I tend to do more applying philosophy to race than trying to take truths about race and mess with philosophy on, on, on that score. I think I'm more, I'm more interested in saying, okay, what if we apply you know, philosophical tools and inquiry to race, what more can we learn about race and our race concepts and discourse from that than doing it the other way around? Well, it sounds like, um, at the very least, there may be um, certain insights that the philosophy of race may have to ethics, and also perhaps to epistemology, I think you'd alluded to a moment ago. But I think, Jordan, your research looks at that epistemological side a little bit more. How do those two things link together in the way that you approach the philosophy of race? Yeah, good question. I mean, I suppose not too obviously, but I mean, I'm, I'm determined to <laughs> show that there is a link there. I mean, a lot of my work is focused on like the concept of racism. And if, you know, if, if there's, if, if we take our, like the everyday or folk concept of racism, firstly as existing and secondly as being kind of like meaningful, matching up with truth in some way, then it seems like there's two parts to it. On one hand, racism has got to be about race somehow. And on the other hand, it's got to be, you know, bad somehow. It's got to be something criticizable about it. And it's, been really difficult to for people to show you know what exactly is the thing that's bad that's going to like produce the right result in a lot of the really intuitive cases kind of my pet project is arguing that we should be focusing on like the epistemic like racism as an epistemic phenomenon rather than say like a purely political or purely ethical problem like like some others have done so that's for me where it connects interesting and and could you just say a tiny bit more about what you take so what the epistemic problem would be or the epistemic sort of account of of race and, and racism just to get a, a feel for what that would mean oh so at the moment i'm kind of pushing a view that frames racism as essentially a matter as, as essentially something a kind of irrational attitude so for something to be racism it has to be you know epistemically defective in some way whereas i i'm trying to move away from considering in terms of all these extra conditions in terms of you know is it morally disrespectful or you know is it just tying into problematic political structures? I kind of want to go for quite a broad definition, but that has a lot of flexibility in it. And I think kind of the epistemic domain provides the best means of doing that. Well, you recently uh, wrote a paper on precisely this topic, uh, Does Racism Equal Prejudice Plus Power?, which is forthcoming in analysis. In that article, you consider a definition of racism that has been offered in the literature, but you reject that definition. What is that definition and what's defective with it? Yeah, so the version as I described in the paper just kind of has, is still pretty, still pretty broad, but essentially has two components, one just being the prejudice, which is a kind of a bit of a generic term I don't engage with too much because that's probably what's going to track the current racism literature most. We could argue about what the prejudice is, but the point of this paper is more to, more to argue, does our general concept of racism involve this kind of power component where you can only be racist if you're being racist to someone, you know, with like relatively less power than you. So if you're kind of discriminating racially against someone who's in a position of relative power compared to you, a lot of people want to say, well, that's not racism. Or at least, you know, it's often motivated from a desire to have a definition of racism that builds in that say, you know, white people can't be racist to black people. And one of the ways of achieving this, well, at least I see it as like a way of achieving this, um, is people use the kind of prejudice plus power definition to kind of build it into that concept. And this paper is essentially just arguing that that attempt doesn't really work either to do what it sets out to do or isn't really compatible with the concept as we hold it. That's very interesting. And so you mentioned at some point that 
people have this kind of definition separating philosophers from people, which is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So this definition clearly has made its way, or at least intuitively, it seems like it's made its way into popular consciousness in some way. So I guess I'm wondering, do you think there's sort of benefits to engaging with this account of racism that seems to be quite popular with activists? Um, You know, are there any benefits to introducing philosophical clarity here? And has this issue or this account of racism been brought into the philosophical literature? Or is this something that you're doing? It's been mentioned before in the philosophical bridge. No, it's been okay. No, mentioned is not giving people enough credit. It it has been brought into the philosophical literature before. People have considered it as part of their theories of racism. It's often proved unpopular in the philosophical literature. There aren't that many people defending it. I think currently, uh, maybe Akides, a philosopher of race, is probably the closest person to espouses a view probably closest to the prejudice plus power account. I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. But there's no one specifically who defends prejudice plus power in the philosophical literature, or at least very few people. Regarding the question about whether philosophers should be engaging with these ideas in popular culture, I definitely, I definitely think that they should. I mean, at the very least, you know, especially in an accessible way. I mean, if these definitions, a lot of people like treating these definitions as simply true. It's kind of I was drawn to write this paper when I was in a, you know, debate about, you know, conversations around racism and this definition was just kind of asserted by like people I was arguing against. And I was just like, what? Is this? We can't just assert this. You know, there's a, there's a very philosophical reaction against anyone just asserting anything. But uh, yes, no, I think we definitely should be because it's worth giving scrutiny to all definitions of racism. And the hope for anyone working on definitions of racism, I assume, is that this will be kind of like taken up widely and, you know, non-philosophers will be able to draw from it too and there'll be some kind of trickle-down effect. It's a separate question of whether that actually happens. But yeah, at least that's the ideal. In these kinds of investigations, again, as you alluded to in your paper, there's a, a distinction to be had between descriptive definitions of racism that aim to define racism, how the word is used uh, in everyday parlance, and revisionary accounts of racism, which aim to provide a pragmatic definition of racism that actually has benefits for using that kind of definition in everyday speak. Uh, How how do you approach defining racism? Are you looking for the the descriptive account or for this revisionary account? I tend to lean towards the descriptive at the moment because I think that there are all sorts of problems with telling people that you should use a word in a different way than everyone else does, I think. There are really interesting questions about like kind of the normative what is like you know the normativity of language in the sense that what governs when I should and shouldn't mean something by a word. But it does seem like in a lot of cases when people are arguing about definitions of words, they want to know, okay, well, which would as a regular user of the language, which would get me the thing that will communicate the thing that everyone else is communicating. And also I think it's it's quite hard to construct a pragmatic case that will apply to Something we have to separate out. Are we talking about me as a language user? Are we talking about the world when we say this is what you should mean by language? You know, it might be that a definition of racism would be better if everyone used it. But you might think, well, I can't make everyone use it. And me using something differently is just going to cause communication failure when I try and talk to people. Yeah. So I do, I do think that descriptivism has to be taken seriously by both sides in a way. And I think that's where I lean at the moment. Very interesting. And I guess in the talk of racism, which is just clearly quite uh, difficult and conceptually messy, you know, you sometimes get people say something like, you know, a white person might say to a black person, they might say like, well, you know, you're kind of, I, I think I think I'm a victim of reverse racism in the way that these policies in society are set up affirmative action seems to be prejudiced against me as a white person. And 
how is that not equally racist? Would you say that a descriptive account should go against that kind of assertion? Is there something just odd about that for a definition of racism? And what would you say about that? There is something certainly odd about it. And I think that's played a large part of the motivation for why people want views like the prejudice plus power view. They want to be able to say, they want to be able to like delegitimize that sort of claim of of like the white people saying I'm the victim of racism. Although, I mean, the trouble with that is it's kind of, in, in my view, I mean, my bugbear with it is that it's a term that only makes sense if you have something like the prejudice plus power view, because otherwise it's just normal racism. Like reverse racism, you, adding the reverse on there doesn't make any sense unless you... So there's, I don't know, I feel like people who take the prejudice plus power definition actually have more in common with people asserting reverse racism than they like to think. I mean, there's also obviously, you know, the question of, like regarding questions about whether that assertion is legitimate. I think it's important to distinguish between whether we want to be able to say, you know, how strong an approach do we want to take? It's one thing to say, this is just a far less significant form of racism, to saying no instance where, you know, a white person is the recipient of racial discrimination can count as racism. And I do feel like really the the, the cases that are pushing the intuition that leads us to prejudice plus power cases are really just aimed at significance. We want to be able to say to the person who goes, yeah, affirmative action is um, an example of reverse racism. It's like, look, come on now. <laughs> this, this is not like a significant instance of racism at the very least. And may not be, you know, you know, either either view can build in ways that it doesn't, that affirmative action doesn't count as racism, for example. But even of like other claims by like white people to like be the victims of racism, we might want to just say, look, these are, perhaps less significant, not, not what society should be focusing on right now. Or you might even think, as I do, that there's a significance condition built into racism itself. So something only counts of racism if it is a certain amount of, if it is significant to a certain extent. I don't think we want to take like the nuclear option of just ruling out any kind of racial discrimination against a white person as racism. Especially it kind of seems to be quite like UK and US centric, and it will end up like with the versions of racism that struggle to apply well to other countries and other cultures, where there isn't this, like, you know, easy white, non-white divide uh, to track. I think there are all sorts of problems with kind of taking the really strong stance. But it does need more engagement in the literature, I think. It's been ignored fairly recently, I think. Yeah, that's very interesting. And and I think you draw a distinction between, because we've been using the word racism now just kind of casually, but I guess there's a distinction also to be drawn between like the sorts of things that people talk about nowadays, like institutional or structural racism and, uh, you know, interpersonal or, or personal racism. And do you think that accounting for that difference is is relevant in the sort of prejudice plus power analysis of racism? And do you think that also goes some way to sort of tracking the weirdness of the reverse racism stuff? Yes. So, yeah, I think that is going to be a, a pretty crucial distinction to draw. In my current work, I do a lot of signposting at the start, being like, I'm only talking about personal racism here, you know, I'm interested in the questions of like whether people can count as racists or as like not racists for certain reasons. But I'm, I haven't entirely worked out my views on, on how institutional racism links up to all this. You could have a view whereby it's just this wholly separate category that needs its own definition. You could want a unifying view that brings them all together. You might want a view that brings them together, but think that some forms are just more important than others, in which case maybe I'd lean towards saying that the personal is somehow primary and institutional is kind of, we're using racism in an almost metaphorical sense. Some people might want, may and do want the opposite, to like for the, like the idea of racist institutions and societal structures to be primary and have like the personal 
kind of just depend on that to some extent. So yeah, these distinctions are going to matter a lot for the debate. And um, yeah, uh, as it evolves and grows, it'll be interesting to see where that leads people. The process of actually getting this paper published, Jordan, in analysis, which obviously you've done in, in your first year at Rutgers, how did that process go? Was this a paper you'd been working on for some time? And how did that process towards actual publication look for you? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's really just a version of a, a paper I wrote very early into like the Cambridge MPhil when I was there. I mean, in fact, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's the paper I kind of used as my writing sample for, for like my admissions. I mean, before I kind of got, you know, learned that it was a version of it was making its way into analysis, of course, perhaps spitefully. It's, it feeds into my thinking about the, the you know system being a lottery. You think that like, if a paper can get into analysis, it's going to do really well as a writing sample for places, but you still get a lot of rejections even then. So, um, yeah, I, I, the process is, it's, it's tricky and difficult. And especially for the first time you're going in, you don't know what to expect. I think realistically, you just have to get stuck in and really get comfortable with rejection. It got rejected at other places first, of course. But I think that, you know, getting getting used to the constant barrage of rejections is something that as graduate students and like, you know, wannabe and trainee philosophers, we just have to like learn to live with. Now, it's obviously a, a huge advantage um, getting as many top quality publications as you can in, as a graduate student in today's climate. What kind of advice have, have you received from mentors in philosophy about getting published, particularly uh, at this early stage in, in your graduate uh, student career? Has it been widely encouraged or have you received any kind of conflicting advice? Oh, there's a lot of conflicting advice out there. I think, yeah, most new graduate students I speak to feel pretty overwhelmed by the amount of contradictory opinions you get on publishing um it seems to to some de- i mean it seems to some degree to, to track how senior the people giving you the advice are but even then within groups I, I wish it fitted neatly into categories there's a lot of people that just you know say just say don't worry about it at all maybe worry about it like towards the end of your degree getting like one or two things no more than that and then there's people that say, yeah, just go for it all the time. You should be going in starting with always like having a bunch of papers out for review. Um, there's you know, various advice in between. I'm kind of, at this early stage, I don't know what use any advice I could give would be. It would just be like more for people to ignore. I, I would say that I'd advise people to maybe weight advice to avoid publishing lower than advice to publish is a general rule. Just because I think often some of the advice against publishing it's not always advice that's going to apply to an individual. So, so, you know, if you, a lot of professors don't like it that, don't like grad student publishing as a thing or think that, you know, in general, philosophy would be better if grad students didn't publish so much or didn't try to publish so much because, I don't know, bogs down peer review and all these other reasons can obstruct people from getting their tenures, uh, like slowing down the whole process. But obviously as a, you know, a grad student, you shouldn't care about that. <laughs> you know, this, you don't want to die on that hill, making a moral stand. Uh, and in my opinion, equally though, you kind of you don't want to. It's very easy to kind of compare yourself to like other people at the start of a program and feel, oh, he's got some, I need some now, and kind of be tempted to rush in and just try and you know get things on your name as fast as possible. I'm not sure I'd recommend that either. I think a lot's going to depend on have you kind of do you know what you're interested in and what you want to work on and what you want to say. And for a lot of people, that's no at the start of it degree and you know they might say well i want to take time to figure out what i like first and yeah absolutely do that some people are just kind of stubborn and narrow-minded like myself and kind of already go into grad school knowing exactly what they want to say about stuff and yeah so a bit easier for me to kind of work out what i want to write and where to send it to 
Yeah, I think take all advice with a pinch of salt and be prepared to ignore lots of it because you'll get lots of it that will conflict. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com. <laughs>